We're starting a brand new series today out of the life of Jacob in the book of Genesis, primarily in Genesis 32. Most of the series is gonna be founded in Genesis 32, and we'll look at a bunch of different stuff. Um, but this series is, is, a, is a unique series for me because if there's anybody, you know, like you just, it's natural. And I, I don't know that this is always healthy. I, I, in fact, some people say it's not healthy, but it's still natural to do it. So I'm just gonna say it anyway. We naturally tend to find someone in scripture. If we have a real relationship with the Bible and it's a part of our lives, we tend to find something or someone to resonate with more than other people more than, than, than other stories. Things certainly just, they tend to hit us differently because of where we are in our life or, or our back, background or our childhood or who we are or whatever our struggles are, or, you know, whatever we do with our life, there just tends to be something. And for me, Jacob has always been one of those people. Jacob, the, the life of Jacob and the story of Jacob, I have always deeply related to. And I wish that I could tell you I related to Jacob for positive reasons, but that's not true. I relate to Jacob's negative reasons. I, I relate to Jacob's struggles. I relate to Jacob's weaknesses. In fact, there, there's a big portion, I think, of my mentality and my personality and in the way that, that I kind of operated, especially before Christ, that was extremely similar to the way that Jacob lived his life prior to truly surrendering his life to God. And so for me, uh, this, this, this life, this story, and, you know, these few chapters in Genesis, they've always spoken volumes to me personally. But about three years ago, God opened up this, the, these chapters, specifically Genesis 32, in a way that honestly saved my life in a whole brand new way, saved me from falling back into the old me. I know you guys may not struggle with that, but I struggle with that often. God, God uh, always seems to open up doors to really test whether or not that old me's still there or not. And sometimes I can feel it just beneath the surface. But three years ago, we were going through something deep as a church. We were going through something. Personally, I was going through a, a big battle, a massive struggle, probably one of the hardest seasons of my life. And in that moment, without getting into the nasty, gritty details, I just want to be honest with you. In that moment, my natural instinct was to just start cutting throats, throwing down, throwing fists, right? Just That's just who I am. I, by nature, I'm a fighter. I, I've always been that way. I've always been, as some would say, aggressive, okay? Okay. And, and in that moment, I, I, that was what was in, in my heart, if I'm honest, but as I begin to pray and I begin to toil with God and I begin to walk through this in my emotions and my struggles and the things that I genuinely wanted to do, the Lord brought me back specifically to Genesis 32 in the life of Jacob. And he began to speak to me and to teach me these things in a new way, in a new perspective that allowed me to truly lay my life down, to lay my emotions down, to lay my desires down and to fully and uh, utterly, completely, and any other synonym along those lines, fully trust him. And, and it, it rewired my brain, and it opened my heart up to a new blessing in God. 
And over the last three years, these, these things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks have become a staple for my life. And so I, I share that to say this. I believe that God wants to do incredible things in your heart and in your life. I believe that God has a massive blessing for your life. What I, I struggle with, because I, I, didn't, I didn't have a lot of good experience with church growing up. And I know that there is a significant, and I want you to hear me, a significant false gospel that is prevalent in our country and spread around the world and that is what is most commonly called the prosperity gospel. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of it. This is a false gospel. That said, I am not gonna let them steal powerful words and truths from scripture and from my God and from my life. They have taken certain words and twisted it all up and it's, it's become so dominant and so prevalent that people who desire to stick with the Bible and the Bible alone struggle to use the same language. I believe that this is the deeper attack of the enemy, not just to present a false gospel, but to twist it up so bad, true men and women of God are afraid to use those same wordings so it limits our ability to teach it. And I've struggled with that. One of the biggest uh, false gospel or the, uh, false teachings in the prosperity gospel is that, and I'll just sum it up as stupid as I possibly can because that's how I feel about it. If you want a new house, send a televangelist $1,000 and you'll get it, right? You ever, anybody remember the old, uh, the fat white guy comedian, Ron White, remember him? And I'm not being mean, that's how, what he describes himself as that. That's his calling card. All right, and he said, you know, I was sitting there watching TV one day and I just was flipping through and uh, I saw a televangelist come on and I was like, well, I'll just sit here and listen to this guy. And he goes, do you feel alone? And Ron was like, I am alone right now. And he goes, do you just feel like life's gotten away from you and you've just gotten overweight and you don't know where the old you went? And he was like, yes. And he goes, are you naked in a beanbag eating Cheetos? And Ron was like, I am. And he goes, God told me to tell you to send me $1,000. And Ron White goes, there must be another naked dude in a beanbag eating Cheetos somewhere and change the channel. So I know I've waited 10 years to tell that joke in a way that matters. So I know that there is, there is a so much uh, heresy, so much wrong teaching around the word that I'm about to tell you. And that, that word is blessing. But I need to tell you, this is God's word, not the devil's. This is the Bible's word, not a false gospels. And the first thing that I wanna look at this morning as we start this series is I wanna look right into the heart of Jacob and the heart of God. And I want us to see what happens when we fully, utterly, begin to trust God for everything in our life, everything in our life. And so before we get into Genesis 32, I just wanna run through Jacob's life just to catch us all up in case we, we're not familiar or we're new to church, we're new to Christianity, we're new to Jesus, and maybe we don't know these stories. I wanna just catch you up on Jacob's life. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. So God raised up a man named Abraham to start the nation of, that became Israel 
And, and God made some significant, powerful promises to Abraham and gave him immense blessing. And Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had two sons named Esau and Jacob. Esau was the oldest, but just by hair. The, 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 the beauty about Jacob's life is we get to see Jacob's life from the beginning all the way to the end, literally from the birth, literally from the womb to his death. We get to see everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the powerful moments with God, the absolute life transformation, and we get to see the beauty of God's blessing on his life all throughout the process and then definitely into his latter years. And but from the beginning, though, Jacob was a fighter. He was a striver. He was, he was, he was someone who, who had immense ambition. And we even see this in the womb. The, the Bible says that Jacob and Esau were fighting in the womb. And God spoke about this to his parents, confirming uh, that, that there would be two great nations that would come from this and that they would strive and fight against one another and that eventually the older would serve the younger. But Jacob didn't know this in the moment. And so what we see even from the birth, it says that as Esau was coming out, they were fighting in the womb, but as Esau came out first, that Jacob was holding on to his heel. And this right here is a, is a symbol of Jacob's entire life. He's ruled by his ambitions. He trusts solely in his own heart. He's ruled by his emotions. And he's fighting and striving daily to acquire the things that he wants, to feed that, that drive in his life and to try to, try to get uh, the desires of his ambitions completed. And it, from, from early on, he's fighting, he's striving, he's scheming. He's known as a deceiver. There's two uh, crazy moments in his life that solidified uh, this reputation for Jacob's character as being a schemer and a deceiver. The first was with his brother. Now, they, they, were, they could not be two different people. Uh, Esau was a hairy hunter. That's how the Bible describes him. Now, I, I, I think that's a compliment, especially back in this culture, to be like a hairy hunter who goes out and provides for the family. And it says that Jacob was a, a smooth tent dweller. Just doesn't sound quite as, ugh, you know what I mean? Like this is Esau, the hairy hunter. And this is the hairless, gentle tent dweller. Just seems off. Because of this, Isaac obviously favored Esau, and Jacob's mother favored Jacob. Jacob had these ambitions, though, and what, what is so ironic in this, and there's so much detail, and there's so much power in this, and the struggle of this series for me is going too far, too fast, but the heart of this is that Jacob's ambitions, what is so ironic, his ambitions actually, some of them actually lined up with the will of God for his life, but he didn't know God. He believed in God, but he didn't really know God, and he definitely didn't trust God. And so even though there was some overlap between what God's will was for his life and what Jacob wanted for his life, he still did God's will his own way, which led him down a road of sinfulness, wickedness, chaos, pain, and destruction. And so one of these moments that kind of solidified the direction of Jacob's life uh, as he, he was trying to fulfill these great ambitions that he had was when his brother Esau, who was the hairy hunter, he went out hunting. And you gotta, this is not like how you guys go hunting. Like when you guys get like a sawed off shotgun and you sit in a tree and you shoot Bambi who's 10 feet away from you. That's modern hunting, okay? This is actual real hunting. Uh, but no, I know everybody, I know my audience. I know I offended everybody in the room. I get it, I understand. I know, you prove your manhood. You shoot Bambi, you get him. I, I believe in you. All right, 
he goes hunting for days and weeks. People will leave the church over that, I promise. That, that was, people have left for dumber things, but I love you guys. The hairy hunter goes out. He's gone for days and weeks at a time. All right, and, and this particular time, he failed. He, he was not able to find anything to eat. He was not able to kill anything. And by the time he gets back, he just barely makes it back alive. Esau believed he was on the verge of literal death. And when he gets back again, this is not modern times. You gotta kind of step into the context of this culture. It's not like they could just roll down the Publix and get some more food. Uh, the, the, the hunting and the gathering, that was, that was the, the, the gist of it. They, they, they were uh, just one family unit uh, here in this one particular area. And if, if, if Esau wasn't able to provide food, then that put them in a very dire situation. And so when he got back after a, a failed hunt, he was gone days to weeks. He's on the verge of death. The only food available is some lentil soup, some bean soup that Jacob made. And it was Jacob's. It was in Jacob's possession. Jacob had worked for it. And Esau said, I'm on the verge of death. Please give me some of your soup. Well, Jacob, being who he is, his character, very ambitious, very self-centered, very self-focused, a schemer, a manipulator, a deceiver, he took this moment to take massive advantage of his brother. And he said, I will give you my soup if you give me your birthright. Now, we don't fully get the power of what a birthright is in our culture, but in this culture, it's everything. It's a deep spiritual blessing that rests on the life of the oldest son. And Esau's mentality in this moment was, if I don't get the soup, I'm gonna die. So I'm willing to trade my birthright because what's good to birthright if I physically die? So he gives up the spiritual blessing for a bowl of soup. Jacob was glad to do this. After the trade was over, we find out later that this was something that, that Esau obviously deeply regretted. It ruined his life. He wept bitterly and tried to change it and make it and go back and he could not do it. But to solidify this moment, he also had to get the right of blessing from his father, Isaac. And so when his father was on the verge of death and Esau was out again doing his thing, Jacob, being the smooth-skinned twin dweller, got some fur put it, and some hair, put it on his arms, because remember, his brother's a hairy hunter, and he walks in and he presents himself to his father, who was old and dying, couldn't see well, and presented himself as Esau and asked for the blessing. And though there was some hesitation on Isaac's part, after he felt the hair that Jacob had put on his arm, Jacob's deception was good enough that Isaac then gave him the blessing of the oldest son. And in this moment, Jacob solidified. He now had the birthright and the blessing as the oldest son from the father, and this could not be undone. This so deeply angered and hurt Esau that Esau promised after the morning time was over for the death of their father, he was gonna kill Jacob. And so Jacob was in this moment where he had to make a decision, and that was fight the hairy hunter or run. And because he was a smooth-skinned tent dweller, say that 10 times fast, he got his staff and he left. And as he left and he crossed the Jordan and he started headed into the abyss and heading into his future and heading into his life, 
It was in this moment that he first truly met God. Now, he had always believed in God. He believed in the God of his father Isaac. He believed in the God of his grandfather Abraham. But this was the first time that he met God. And there was a powerful moment that we'll actually look at in this series. But in this moment, God basically introduces himself to Jacob and Jacob becomes a believer, a true, genuine believer in God. But Jacob never becomes a person who trusts the God he believes in. This is the overall tension in Jacob's life over the next 20 years, struggling to trust the God that he genuinely believes in. Now, I I want you to really wrap your mind around this moment and what I just said, because I look back over the course of my life and I realize, and I'm being honest with you, one of the greatest struggles that I've had as as a follower of Christ was never believing in God. It was never believing in Jesus. I had a moment with God. There was no doubt in my mind that Jesus was the son of God. There was no doubt in my mind that I was a sinner. There was no doubt in my mind that I needed a savior. There was no doubt in my mind. I believe it without doubt that Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sins. I believe he was buried. I believe he was raised from the dead to life. And I believe I was filled with the spirit of God. And now I believe that I am a son of God because of the love of God and the work of Christ on the cross. I believe that deeply. But even with that belief, I struggled to truly trust God on a genuine, real, practical day-to-day level. And if you're honest, for so many of us, that is the greatest tension and the greatest struggle that we have as followers of Christ to fully trust the God we genuinely believe in to truly entrust our heart, our minds, our body, our spirits, our ambitions, our everything over to God. We, we tend to live our lives in the same way that Jacob does. For the next 20 years after this moment, he has this genuine believing relationship with God and he even sees God move in his life. He even sees the hand of God on his life. But he never fully truly trusts God. And as he continues to travel, he winds up meeting a man named Laban who had two daughters. One was not so hot. One was super hot. I'm just putting modern language on biblical. You get, don't get mad at me. I don't, I don't want to let her. All of God's children are beautiful. I believe that Jacob didn't. That's all I'm saying. Okay. (laughs) Jacob didn't believe it. I believe it. Jacob didn't believe it. There was two daughters. He wanted the younger one. And, and, and Laban tricked him. Like Jacob met his match. He met a greater trickster, a greater deceiver in Laban. And they, he says, you go work for me for seven years and I'll give you my daughter. <clears throat> Little switcheroo at the end of seven years. Instead of giving him the one he wanted, he gave him the older one. And he said, work seven more years and I'll give you the one you want. So he worked seven more years. He winds up working for and around Laban for 20 years. In the end, Jacob did what Jacob does. His ambitions, even though God was with him, even though God had, had, had led him and guided him, even though God had provided and blessed him, and Jacob knew this, every time Jacob had an opportunity to truly trust God, and truly put his life in God's hands alone, Jacob always leaned on himself. Jacob always trusted his own heart. 
And because of this, just like with his brother Esau and just like with his father Isaac, things go super south with Laban and he's got to do the next thing that he always does and that is run away from his problems. But God speaks to him and tells him, it's time for you to return after 20 years to Esau and to deal with Esau. And so this is where we get in this moment where he's, he's left Laban, he's on his way back to Esau, and now he's got to deal with the sins and the mistakes of his past. Last time he, he met, last time he, he, he knew Esau, Esau was basically wanting to kill him. It's been 20 years, but when you steal your brother's birthright and you steal the blessing from your father and you basically ruin his life, that's a grudge that's probably going to last 20 years. And so Jacob's deeply afraid already that Esau, the second he sees him, he's going to kill him. And so what we see in Genesis 32 is we see the beginning of this story, the beginning of this thing. And I want to go through this really fast as we, as we set the heart of this series uh, in Genesis 32. So I want to read this. In Genesis 32, verse 1, it says, Jacob went on his way, so he's leaving Laban, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahaneum. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant, Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So this is Jacob's attempt at trying to find favor in his brother's eyes, hoping hoping that Esau has forgiven him, hoping that Esau doesn't still want to kill him. But what I want you to see here is Genesis 32, it's a lot of scripture. We're about to read all of it. It's a lot of scripture. The vast majority of what we are about to read is Jacob's schemes to try to convince Esau not to kill him. Though you're going to see a small prayer, what you don't see even after 20 years of following God, even after 20 years of believing in God, what you're not gonna see is Jacob trust God with the moment and with the situation. You're not gonna see it. There is so much detail, and you're about to see it. There's so much detail. And I believe that what we're about to read and what God wants us to see, the reason we get all this detail is because I think God wants us to see what it looks like to believe in God, but not trust him. And so with that in mind, I want us to look at this. It says in verse six, it said, and the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. That's not a welcome party. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So I, I, I want you to see there's something that happens here in these scriptures that actually reveals something about Jacob's heart and about my heart and about your heart. It reveals the way that it works, especially when we don't trust God. So I want you to see what happens. And, and I just, and if we don't, there's others, there's, there's more to the message today but if we only get to this point, if we only get to truly understanding what is truly happening in Jacob's heart, 
and we only get to truly understanding what's happening in our heart and what it really looks like to believe in God and not trust him, I believe that we will leave here better than we walked in. So I don't wanna blow past this. I want you to see what it says. It says that, that he's hoping that they send the messengers and that he finds favor in Esau's eyes and heart and that Esau just sends some type of like, hey, it's all good. We're good, bro. Come home. Like, let's just, you know, kill a cow and have some fun. Like, whatever. And, but what he gets is, he's on his way to meet you, but he's got 400 men with him. And I want you to see this situation, this circumstance, this moment that Jacob finds himself in when he hears that Esau's coming, this moment sets his heart on fire. It becomes fueled by two things, great fear and great anxiety. So I, I want you to see what happens. When he gets this news, that fear begins to overwhelm him and that stress or that anxiety begins to overwhelm him. And it literally sets his heart on fire. And what his heart begins to do is it begins to produce all of these thoughts about what is about to happen to him. Esau's coming. He's got 400 men. He's gonna kill me. He's gonna wipe out everything that God's given me over the last 20 years, I'm gonna lose in one day. Everything's been for naught all the, 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 the ambitions and all of the work that I've put in and everything that I've done when I was younger and everything that I just did for the last 20 years at Laban, all of it's for naught, all of it's worthless. He does have a small prayer right after this, but it's really just to remind God, hey, you said things were gonna go well. It seems like I'm gonna die tomorrow. You wanna throw me a bone here? Even though there's this, he believes in God, there's still not that trust. And so this is the thing that I really want us to understand you can start to gauge your trust for God when negative difficulties come into your life. It is immensely easy to trust God when everything's going fine. The truth is you're not necessarily trusting God when everything's going fine, but you don't have a need to trust God when everything's going fine. So you cannot evaluate your own heart when everything's going good. You can only evaluate your heart when everything's going south. Let me help you. Sometimes I hear this statement. That's not really who I am. It's just that that moment brought it out of me. Nope, that's who you really are. Jesus says, the heart produces and whatever comes out is evidence of what's really going on in here. And so the thing that we, we can't judge ourselves right after we win the lottery and get the promotion and she finally says yes to the date, you've been creeping on for three years, stop that. Stop being a stalker. Right. You can't judge yourself in the positive ways. You can only truly evaluate your heart and the worst of it. The worst of it. People say the worst brings out the worst. No, the worst brings out what's real. And so in this moment, we get to see Jacob's heart and Jacob's heart does not trust God because when the fear sets in and the anxiety sets in and the heart starts shooting off all these thoughts, he begins to scheme in his mind. 
The, 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 the fear, the anxiety set the heart on fire. The heart's producing all these thoughts. And then he begins to scheme. Well, I'm gonna, have to, I'm gonna have to divide up my camps and I'm gonna have to put apparently the people that I don't like as much up front. Just, just funny to me, as he divides this down, you can really see who he cares about. All the people he don't like, that he knows they're gonna die. They're gonna die. Maybe these people will get away. Then he puts himself all the way at the back. All right, so we, we get to see this as he's scheming. He's laying it out. Well, maybe if Esau comes up here, then we can do this, then we can escape this way. And I'll put this camp here, and I'll put this camp here, and I'll put this camp here, and then we'll do this. And then what, what comes after this is all these crazy details. In fact, I, I just want to read them to you really fast. It says, uh, and I'm, and I'm just going to read this to you. And I know this is a lot of detail, but I just, I want you, I want, I want to see this. Uh, so it says, in verse 13, it says, so he stayed there that night and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ooze, 20 rams, 30 milking camels, their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, listen to the detail. I know this is boring. I know you're not gonna get anything from this. I know that you probably don't really care how he separated the ooze and the cows and the camels. But the point of what I want you to see is the amount of detail he spends all day long scheming. When the circumstance and the situation shows up and it's worst case scenario, it brings out the, the trueness of him, the trueness of his heart. And he spends all day long scheming. He got down to the very minute details. Listen to this. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And those uh, are these ahead of you. Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought I may appease him with with the present that goes ahead of me and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So this present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So I, I want you to, he covered all of his bases. He spends all day long scheming and planning. He spends all day long trusting in his own heart, trusting in his own abilities, trusting in his own plans, trusting and he, down to the point where he's looking people in the eyes and he's saying, you're gonna go first. And when he says this, then you say this. He goes to the second one. You're gonna go here. You're gonna be separated this far. When he says this, then you're gonna say this. And he goes to the third one. And you're gonna be separated this far. And you're gonna be a little more to the right. And when he says this, then you're gonna say this. He spends all day, all day long, wrestling and fighting with the circumstance and the situation, trusting in his own heart, his own thoughts, and his own abilities. What the heart does when it doesn't trust God when it faces situations like this, it's the, the fear. In this case, it's fear and anxiety. It's ambition. It could be a thousand different things. But when you get in these moments, it sets your heart on fire. The hearts begin to produce thoughts. The thoughts begin to produce schemes and the schemes become actions. And before you know it, you are living your life, not just trusting in your own heart instead of God, but living your life trusting in your heart that's being fueled by fear, anxiety, ambition, insecurity, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Not one time besides a small prayer to acknowledge God in this moment and to remind God, you said things were gonna go good, but it doesn't look like that. Could you help me? 
He spends the rest of the day, he does a two second kind of acknowledgement prayer, but then he spends the rest of the day trusting in his own heart. And this is all he knew. This is, this is what he knew. And this is what I knew. And this is what you know. It is so difficult to truly trust the God that you believe in because of the sin in our own lives, because of our own struggles. But I want you to see this before we move on to the meat of this. I want you to see why we cannot trust our own heart. This is probably the number one thing to start this series. We've, we've got to come to terms with this before we can get to the, the, the powerful part. We've got to understand how we cannot depend on our own hearts and our own thoughts. God gives us this point blank in Jeremiah 17. Start with verse seven. It says, blessed is the man, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when he comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. If you look at that, he's saying, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord because if you trust in the Lord, your life is not susceptible to what's going on outside of your life. Your roots are dug deep into, in this case, in this analogy, into the water coming from the stream. So it doesn't matter if it's not raining. It doesn't matter if there's a storm. It doesn't matter if there's dust bowl. It doesn't matter if there's a famine. It doesn't matter if there's a drought. It doesn't matter what's going on outside your life. For those who trust God, they're blessed because their blessing, their provision, everything that they need comes from God who is not affected by outside circumstances. He says, so blessed is the man who trusts in God. But before this, he says, cursed is the man who trusts in man. And it's the exact opposite. It says, uh, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So he says, Blessed is the man who trusts God because when God is your trust, when you truly trust God, you are not dependent on outside circumstances because all of your blessing and all of your power and all of your wisdom and all of your knowledge and all of everything that you need comes from within you because it's coming from God who your trust is rooted in. But when you trust in man and you trust in flesh and you trust in intelligence and you trust in your heart and you trust in your own ability, you're like a bush out in the desert. You are deeply dependent on outside circumstances, and when they go south, you go south with it. But the most powerful verse here is verse nine, which explains in detail exactly why you cannot trust flesh, you cannot trust your own mind, you cannot trust yourself, because your heart, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, I want to address something really fast because I don't want to have to get an email and address this 500 times. If you grew up with the King James Version of the Bible, it says desperately wicked. It is a wrong translation. That's all I can tell you. Every other translation says sick because that word in the Hebrew means sick. I don't know what Mr. James was doing when he was writing this, but in this particular case, it's just a bad translation. What it says is the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. What God needs you to understand, as much as it may hurt our feelings, as much as it may, may just, I can't believe he said that. No one has lied to you more than your own heart. 
No one has deceived you more than your own emotions. No one has led you astray more than the desires that come from a heart that doesn't fully trust God. And God's telling you up front, if you spend your life believing in him, but leaning on your own heart, you are gonna experience what he just called a cursed life. All a curse, a, a curse is, and I know that it gets mystical and magical, it's not. A curse means that you've chosen something that has an inerrant, natural ability that will inevitably bring negative consequences to your life. All right? So what God's saying is when you choose to trust your heart, when you choose to trust your heart over trusting him, when you lean on your own emotions more than the truth of God, when you lean on your own ambitions versus seeking the will of God, when you get to this place, you're stepping into a cursed life. That lifestyle will inevitably lead to negative impacts in your life, period. There's no way to get around it versus Trust in God is gonna bring nothing but blessing. I didn't say easy, I said blessing. So we see this in Jacob's life. We see this. All his life, he trusts his own heart. He believes in God, but when it comes down to making decisions, when it comes down to the day-to-day -day decisions, when it comes down to life and ambitions, when it comes down to dealing with circumstances, to dealing with situations, to dealing with people, to dealing with provision, when it comes to Jacob living his life, though he believes in God, he leans on his own heart and he pays the price for this over and over and over again. But then God teaches Jacob a lesson and he does it in the coolest way. He picks a fight with him. I just think God's cool, right? I think, this, I think God is so unique in the way that he chooses to teach us stuff. In this moment, he knew that Jacob needed to learn something. And the way that God chose to teach it to him was picking a fight. I wanna show you this. That same night, after he spent all day long scheming, all day long, trusting in his own heart all day long, trusting in his own mind all day long, trusting in his own ambitions, never once goes to truly get alone with God. He just kind of utters a prayer as he's just going through life. Kind of like, I've been there. I'm sure you've been there. When you're like, God, I kind of trust you, but I'm still gonna punch him in the face tomorrow. I'm gonna trust you, but I'm still gonna tell him what's up. I'm gonna trust you, but I'm gonna kind of handle it myself. So I'm gonna really trust you to just let me do what I want. And God's like, nah, we're, we're not gonna do that. So I love this. It says, the same night he arose, he took his wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. Immediately, immediately, Jacob was left alone and immediately a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. I wanna be real clear. This man started the fight with Jacob. Jacob didn't fight him. The man began to wrestle with him. We know it's God in a few minutes. We, we know for sure it's God. But in the beginning, Jacob didn't know that this was God. So Jacob begins wrestling back. 
It says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Now there's so much in these verses and we're gonna look at several different things over the next few weeks. But this is the first thing that I want you to see. This is the over, I believe the overarching lesson that God's trying to teach Jacob and that God's trying to teach me and God's trying to teach you. I've heard this preached and I'm not, I'm not downing it. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not insulting it. I'm not even saying it's wrong. But I've heard this preached that what God's trying to get Jacob to do is learn how to let go. Have you ever heard that being taught from this scripture? Nobody? You ever listen to messages? Because that's primarily what's always is being said about this. I love you guys. Everybody's like, nope. <laughs> But that's primarily, if you ever wanna search, that's primarily what you're gonna find. But the last couple of weeks, I've struggled heavily. The last thing I was gonna do is get up here and say, God wants you to let go and let God. I wasn't gonna say it. I even told the team that. I'm like, that's, that's no, that, that's not, it just didn't, nothing felt right about that. I mean, I think there's some truth to it. I think God's saying, hey, let go of control, maybe. Let, 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 let go of, you, you know, trusting your own heart. Yeah, let, let go of these things, just let God. I, I get it. That's a great thing, right? Let Jesus take the will, whatever. That's a great, that's good. But I don't think that's what, Je I don't think that's what God's really trying to teach Jacob. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I want you to look at this. There's, there's four truths that you gotta see right here. Out of all the ways that God could have handled this, out of all the ways that God could have stepped into Jacob's life and taught him this, God chose to pick a fight with him. God chose to grab him and hold on to him and wrestle him, enforcing Jacob to hold on to him. God started it, not Jacob. That's the number one, that's the first thing. God started it, not Jacob. Then, I want you to look at this. Then he touches his hip. So. This is something that you might miss if you're not thinking about this. And God's probably not ever popped your hip out of place, right? When you pop your hip out of place, you can't run away. You're in immense pain. In fact, you're probably gonna fall over. So when God popped his hip out of place, Jacob quit wrestling God, and then he started clinging to God. He's no longer wrestling him, now he's holding on to him for dear life. The next thing I, I think this is, when he touched his hip, this transitions Jacob. He realizes in this moment, this is not just a man, this is God. And he holds on even tighter. Now, if you've read the story, if you read the scriptures a minute ago, you know that, that God told him to let go. But Jacob didn't let go. And then God rewarded Jacob for not letting go. So let's just make sure we get this. God picks the fight. God chooses to wrestle. Then he pops his hip and makes it impossible for Jacob to really run away or let go. So Jacob quits wrestling and now he's clinging to him. And then even though he says, hey, let go of me, 
Jacob in return said, I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. And then God rewarded, I don't wanna say his disobedience because that sounds wrong, but God said, let go. And Jacob said, no. Jacob said, I'm not letting go because for the first time in my life, I just realized everything that I will ever need, you have. For the first time in my life, I just realized everything that I am, I am because of you. And any future I have or any hope that I have or any, any tomorrow, any goodness that's left in my life, I know that it is wrapped up in you and you alone. So no, I'm, I'm not gonna let you go. I'm gonna hold on and I'm gonna hold on until you bless me. I'm gonna hold on until whatever you want from me, you give me. It was in this moment that Jacob finally began to trust God. It was in this moment that he fully realized he did not have the ability, he did not have the wisdom, he did not have the knowledge, he did not, he did not have what it took to live this life of greatness that God had planned for him. He knew that his future was tied up in God and God alone. And though he had spent his whole life wrestling the issues, he spent his whole life wrestling with his brother. He spent his whole life wrestling with his father. He spent his whole life wrestling with ambition. He spent his whole life wrestling with Laban. He spent his whole life wrestling with his emotions. He spent his whole life wrestling with fear and anxiety. And he spent his whole life wrestling with these things. And I think the lesson, I think what, what, what God wanted to teach Jacob was stop wrestling with this world and wrestle only with me. If you try to wrestle your ambition, you'll lose. If you try to wrestle fear on your own, you'll lose. If you try to wrestle anxiety and insecurity on your own, you'll lose. If you try to wrestle sin on your own, you'll lose. If you try to wrestle the curse of regret of your past, like what, what deeply hurt Jacob, you will lose. This is the message I think that God is giving Jacob. Every time you've tried to fight on your own, even when you've won, you've lost. And he said, so Jacob, the reason I engaged you wrestling is because that's who you are, your fighter. And so I'm trying to get you to do something. I'm trying to get you to learn how to stop wrestling the world and wrestle me. I'm trying to teach you not how to let go of things, but how to hold on to me and know that I not only am God, not only do I love you, not only do I have a plan for you, but that I desire to bless you. I desire to reward you for coming after me. I desire for you to seek me so that I can bless you. And this is the part where I had to, in my own insecurity, I had to bring up the false uh, gospel, prosperity gospel. Because I'm about to say something that they have taken and twisted up. God wants you to come after him so that he can bless you with that which he desires to give you. And there's a religious part of you that might be sitting there and go, show me that in scripture. I'm glad you thought that because I'm about to. I want you to see in Hebrews 11:6. 6. 
That's why we had this read during worship. God is giving us the definition of faith in Hebrews 1. And then he's explaining in Hebrews 6 that it's impossible to please him without faith. Then he tells you exactly what he means by this. So this is the part where if what you think different from what God thinks, guess who's wrong? Are we good with that? Okay. So this is what God says. I think this is exactly, exactly what he's trying to drive into the heart of Jacob. Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, that's trust. It is impossible to please God. Impossible. Impossible means, I looked it up in the Greek, it means impossible. It means can't be done. Cannot happen. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you strive, no matter what you do, no matter how many Bible studies you go through, no matter how much money you give, no matter what, how many mission trips you go on, no matter how much, no, whatever it is that you're trying to do, God's telling you, it's impossible to please me without faith, without truly trusting me. And then he gives you exactly what it looks like. This is what he says. Remember Jacob's struggle. He believed in God, but he didn't trust God. And because he believed in God and didn't trust God, he never sought God. He never went after God. He never held on to God. Because he believed God and didn't trust God, he spent his life depending on his own heart, his own ability, his own intellect, chasing his own ambitions, trying to make it work. And no matter what he did, it went south. It was difficult in a negative way. It was unsatisfying. He had no rest in his soul. He had no peace. He had no real purpose. All of the things that God put in our heart to desire, Jacob chased it all in the world and never found it. This is what God says, faith pleases him. Because anyone, and without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who approaches him or anyone who draws near to him, or anyone that comes after him, anyone that desires to go after God, he says, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So I wanna make sure that you hear this. You need this for the rest of this series. God says, it takes faith and trust to really please me. And I, I'm, I'm just, I'm gonna speak for God right now, according to this scripture, God says, I want you to believe in me, but equal to you believing in me, I want you to know that I reward those who earnestly seek me. I want to reward you. I want to bless you. I have things that I wanna do in you and do through you. I have blessings that I wanna give you. And he says, and I want you to know the only way to please me is with faith and trust. And what faith and trust looks like to me, God says, is you believing that I exist and you also believing that everything that you will ever need, I possess. And that I, not, I, I don't just exist, but I desire to reward you for believing this and coming after me. God says, this is what he wants a believer's life to look like. He wants you to believe that he exists 
and he wants you to spend your life seeking him and chasing him, believing in your heart of hearts that he has goodness planned for you, believing in your heart of hearts that he wants to reward you, believing heart of hearts that he wants to bless you. He says, everything that you need and everything that you desire, everything that I placed in your heart, you were born with certain God-given desires. And he says, you will spend your whole life seeking those things in the world. And I'm telling you, it's gonna waste everything. But if you will take the same desires and you will seek me instead, I will give you every single one of them. Over and over and over again, from Genesis to Revelation, God promises to give us the desires of our hearts when we trust him. So I need you to know, I think the enemy has worked overtime in some of these false teachings to try to get you away from believing what I just told you. And so I want you to know what I think God was doing when he showed up in Jacob's life, just like I believe he showed up in my life specifically three years ago, and I think that he's showing up in a lot of our lives right now this morning. He wants you to know, I am the answer to everything you need and I want to reward you, and I wanna bless you, and I wanna do good to you. And I have a purpose for your life. I have a plan for your life. Every provision that you would ever need, I have. I have everything. I know who you really are, and I know what you need the most. No one else and nothing else in this world is gonna be able to do what I can do. So I want you to turn your heart fully over to me and I want you to trust me. I want you to seek me. I want you to hold on to me and I don't want you to let me go until I bless you. That's a promise from God. That's how God defines faith. That's how God says, I want you to live your life. I don't want you just to believe in me. I want you to trust me and I want you to believe that I reward those who diligently seek me. We need, we have to, we have to become desperate and understand God has everything we would ever need in this life. And he wants us to stop wrestling and fighting in this world alone and learn to come to him and fight not against him, but with him and hold on to him until he moves. I don't wanna to get too far into this series, but I think that God will allow certain things to happen to get us in these moments, just like Jacob was, because the end of the story was everything that Jacob was afraid of, God had already fixed. God had already taken care of it. What he, he went through all of that stress and all of that fear and all of that anxiety and he made all those plans and all those schemes and it was all pointless. Because when Esau showed up, Jacob bowed down seven times in some weird act of humility. And he said, he called him Lord and he said, I'm your servant. And Esau just basically said, what is this brother? Just said, you're my bro, I love you. And they held each other and they wept. Your scheming, your planning, and your ability can never outwork the hand of God. The true Christian life is learning to trust God, to hold on to Him until He moves. The end of that story from three years ago, and I know I didn't give any details, so it means almost nothing to you, but this is maybe just for me, so just love me, was the first time in my life, 
first time in my life when we faced that situation, I did nothing but hold on to God because of this scripture. I didn't open my mouth. I didn't take an action. I didn't say a word, but daily I held on to God and I watched him over the last three years move and bless in ways I could not have imagined. So the first part of this series, and you may not fully get this today, and you may not fully know how, and you may not fully, the first part of this series, I need you to know, we got to stop trusting our own hearts. And we have got to learn how to hold on to God. And we have got to become a people who don't just believe in Him, but trust Him. And don't just believe that He exists, but believes that He rewards and He blesses those who know He is the God of blessing and comes after Him and holds on to Him until He moves. Amen? Amen. Amen. Come on, God is good.